Hi, and welcome to the Birth Visionary Podcast, where we talk tools, resources, and taking action with birth workers and maternal health advocates committed to social justice and systemic change. We help you get clear about your vision and values so you can lead with authenticity and intention in your unique work. Well, hello, everybody. It's Jennifer Dunatov, and I am both excited and nervous to that I just hit record on what will be my first solo episode for the Birth Visionary podcast. So I just have to say a huge thank you to the people that I have interviewed up to this point. I love being in conversation with others, and I thought it was time that I do the solo episode and talk a bit about who I am what I do, where I've been, and why I'm doing what I do now. Because people have a lot of questions, like, what is a bioethicist? What is birth ethics work? Why is this particular work through the podcast really important to me? And I'm hoping to answer those questions for you today. So first of all, I am a wife. I am a mom of three kids, seven and under, and a bioethicist also known as a medical ethicist or a healthcare ethicist. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen um, my posts and reels that touch on this field of bioethics or medical ethics, but I'll get into that a little uh, in a little more detail today because we can do that on a podcast. So my educational background, which people ask about a lot, I actually have a master's in theology and a doctorate in healthcare ethics. So I completed my master's in theology at Loyola Marymount University, a Jesuit, very progressive, social-minded institution in Southern California. And then I moved all the way, this Southern California native moved all the way to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for my doctoral program at Duquesne University. So huge culture shock for me, having been born and raised and lived my entire life in sunny Southern California. Let's just say I had no idea how to drive in the snow, didn't know what an ice scraper was, and I got a pretty (laughs) significant education in Midwest, Mid-Atlantic slash East Coast living, however you, whatever category you put Pittsburgh in. But I had a really great time for the two years that I was there. And after I finished coursework in grad school, I actually returned to Southern California to accept an adjunct teaching position um, at Mount St. Mary's University, a small college in, at the time it was Mount St. Mary's College, uh, a small um, college slash now university in Los Angeles area. So I was teaching at the university and I quickly moved into a clinical position. Um, as a regional director of ethics for a um, hospital system in Southern California. So being like (laughs) moving rather quickly from an academic environment to a clinical role at the age of 26, 27 was pretty significant and pretty life-changing for me. I was basically just thrown into this world of healthcare, had barely stepped into um, a hospital, you know, a day in my life for my own care. And this was this was an interesting transition. So I should say, as part of my doctoral program at Duquesne, we were required to do clinical rotations. So the reason, one of the reasons I chose that program is that it was both a academic and clinical program. You had to complete ethics residency hours in a hospital or clinical setting 
in order to complete that program. So for me, that was really important, and it has served me well in my career so far. So I was hired into this system as a regional director, and nine months later, I ended up transitioning to an executive role as a system director of ethics at a larger healthcare system also based in Southern California. And I did that for seven years. Once again, um, at this point in the history of medical ethics, I would say um, in the United States, there weren't a lot of people doing this work. So one could say that I moved into this position. I was 28, just about to turn 29, um, at a time when ethicists with both an academic and clinical background that specialized in Catholic healthcare because I was working for a Catholic healthcare system, they were hard to come by. So at this, um, I probably, the best way I can say it is I probably moved into a position that um, someone typically now would be eligible to work in or qualified for 10 years older than I was at the time or 10 years with 10 years more experience at the time. So again, the field was so young and women working in the field were in extremely short supply. So I had this niche background that made me the perfect candidate, whether I was ready or not. It's a great lesson in just kind of jumping in when the opportunity's there and you learn on the job, which I absolutely did. So I did that for seven years. I was director of theology and ethics for this um, large not-for-profit health system based in Southern California for seven years. And I thrived in that role professionally. I traveled extensively. I had a seat at some pretty exciting tables. I was a part of some amazing conversations. And I flew everywhere and, and met with people who were, you know, shaking it up, innovators in healthcare and in the world of healthcare ethics. And it was a pretty exciting time. So um, things began to shift, though. After some time, I met my soon-to-be husband. We got married. I got pregnant. I gave birth. And that's when things started to get really interesting. So a bit about my birth story. Um, I like to say that in the winter of 2014, I was baptized into the Church of New Motherhood. So quite literally, I gave birth in a tub of water surrounded my, by my midwife, a husband, my husband, a birth assistant, and, you know, all the things. I had a very empowering, amazing birth experience with my first. I mean, it was really, you know, simultaneously the most vulnerable and empowering thing I had ever been through. So I will say that elation was quickly followed by anxiety and just like so many new mothers, I struggled with my new identity in those first postpartum days and weeks. So I forced myself to enroll in a new mom support group, which if you are a Southern California native, Orange County native, and if you're a, a new mom you might or a mom, you might remember Granola Babies when it was a store that existed in its brick and mortar form. So shout out to Giselle Beaumet, um, the amazing owner of Granola Babies at the time that provided space for new moms to gather and talk about their experiences and and get that support. So I'll never forget, we, we all came in, we gathered on the floor for that first meeting. Um, I believe my oldest was six weeks old at the time. 
And I'm telling you, I had to drag myself there. I knew it was going to be good for me. I knew it was going to be important. I didn't know it was going to be life-changing to the level that it was in terms of my career, but I knew that I had to be there. So I oh, I packed my six-week-old in the car, screaming the whole way. There's nothing worse than a screaming infant in a car seat on a long drive. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. And so I'm sitting on the floor. He's writhing in my arms. I'm trying to nurse not working out really well. Um, But honestly, what happened in that first gathering literally would change the trajectory of my life's work. So Giselle asked us to go around the room and for everyone to share their birth story, whatever we wanted to say about it. So of course, my hand shot up. I was so eager to share this beautiful textbook arrival of my son. And I did this looking back rather arrogantly, or that's how I (laughs) experience looking back now, because what I didn't expect is that moving on to the person next to me who began experience, you know, talking about their experience with birth, she began to describe her birth as traumatic, not only traumatic, but similar. She had similar feelings about this experience as she did around the sexual assault she experienced as a teenager. And so immediately something inside me shifted. I mean, you would be horrified by that comment no matter what. Um, But as a medical ethicist, my brain just lit up. And, you know, that part of my brain that had sort of been lost to the 3 a.m. feedings started paying attention. And as we went around that room, person after person spoke about their struggles with the birth experience, primarily the clinical birth experience. Their voices weren't heard, um, their dishes, their wishes, their dishes were disregarded, that probably too. <laughs> um, their wishes were disregarded, their bodies were physically harmed, they were reporting by clinical professionals. So again, I am in that postpartum haze. I'm filing this away in the back of my brain. There is a pattern here in in the years that I have now been a bioethicist working in a prominent role for a health system comprised of 11 hospitals where I have ethics responsibility. I've never heard about these issues in obstetrics care from our labor and delivery units. Never did an ethics case come my way. Plenty of end of life cases and some beginning of life cases concerned with um, issues not related to just basic labor and delivery every day. But here, it's you know, I'm sitting in this room, completely unexpected experience, and I'm hearing these stories, and I'm thinking, now is not the time, but one day I have to look into this. I have to understand what's going on here. This is not right. I'm horrified. So I returned to work after a generous postpartum um, maternity leave, and things begin to shift at work. So if you've ever returned to a corporate role or a job after giving birth and experienced hardship, you will probably understand what I was going through. So I was, you know, prior to giving birth, I was a young executive, you know, crushing the game in my role. I felt it was going really, really well. And now I return And my identity has shifted a bit. I have different priorities. My work is still important to me, 
But if my child is sick, if I'm sick, if something's going on, if I need to pump, like I'm now balancing other obligations. So it became very apparent with in my son's first year of life that I was not going to be able to sustain the role that I was choosing not to, I'll rephrase that. I no longer wanted to work in the ways that I once worked in this role because I have a new human in my life and things needed to look different. So as what can happen in a lot of organizations is we began to, I began to encounter resistance and a shift in the way people perceived me, reacted to me, and shifting perspectives about or perceptions about the quality of my work, all of the above. I don't have to go into a lot of detail. I know that many of you listening have probably experienced some version of this um, after giving birth and returning to the workplace. So I thought I was the problem. I literally thought, like, I have a problem. I can't handle this. I ended up resigning. It was what I call my devil wears Prada moment in the L- at LAX, the Los Angeles airport, Los Angeles International Airport. I was um, told, you know, you have to travel or, you know, there are going to be consequences. And the good girl who respects authority in me said, OK, I've got to force myself to get on this flight to Dallas and I've got to get to the airport. So I head to the airport and I'm on the phone with our corporate travel agent and she's saying there's a big snowstorm in Dallas. Dallas wasn't my final destination. And she said, you'll get in, but you're not going to get out for at least three or four days. So as a mom who is nursing, I think James was around nine months at that time, you know, not wanting to be away from my baby that long, you know, one night was already freaking me out. For me personally, that was that was a huge stretch. So I'm standing there in the airport holding my bag, holding my cell phone and thinking, what do I do? Do I get on this plane or do I bail? And I ended up, you know, short of throwing my cell phone in the fountain, like in the movie, in the book, Devils Wear Prada, Devil Wears Prada, I turned around, headed back to the parking structure and literally quit my job in one line email typed on my phone at the time. So I don't recommend that as a way of quitting a job, but I am emphasizing that for you because that was the mental state I was at in that moment in a situation that I felt, again, that I was part of the problem and this is this is the way out, right? This is the way out of feeling the shame that I was feeling. So I left because and I, I, you know, I, what I was feeling was shame, and like I had something done, something wrong, and I needed to make things okay between myself and the organization, the us, whatever the us is, the organization, my boss, my coworkers. So I, you know, I accepted, even though I resigned, they offered me a package. I accepted the package they offered me. I probably could have asked for way more, um, but again, thought I had done something wrong, needed to be the good girl and leave in a way that where they thought I was, you know, I was in good with them. (laughs) And I realized like the system is harmful, not, you know, and I'm not saying just only this organization, but the system as it, where it meets at the time where it meets people returning from giving birth can be harmful. Um, Because ultimately 
patriarchal systems are harmful. And more on that later. But when we talk about medicine, we talk about healthcare delivery, when we talk about corporations, there are, no matter how advanced a corporation or an organization is, there are always going to be aspects of any kind of system based on patriarchal structure principles that are going to be harmful for people at different stages of life, depending on what they're experiencing and what they're coming up against. So, you know, we perpetuate these systems. I perpetuated these systems, um, this system, this approach, and we are harmed by them. It's a symbiotic relationship, I think, that reinforces really a non-sustainable paradigm for existing. So oftentimes when we, I'll experience, you know, speak for myself, when my identity was shifting, I realized that for years I was not really thriving. I was not really growing. I wasn't really healing, but I was just simply existing or, you know, definitely in the case of after my son was born, I was surviving. So by the end of my seven years in that role, I was a mess. And motherhood just brought that mess into like the glaring light of day, like Death Valley at 2 p.m. on a July kind of glaring light, or toddlers shining a flashlight directly in your eyes at 2 a.m. kind of light. Um, No experience there, of course. (laughs) So it hurt. It was hard. But I knew I no longer fit in that space. My emotions and needs were just too much for the system, for the organization, and those that were quite frankly comfortable there as I once was. So I was othered. And the second the organization saw me as a potential threat or a risk, I was kicked out of the quote, you know, family. So this recycled air cubicle glass office, fluorescent lit village that we had all worked so hard to construct and nurture, while in many ways, betraying our core truths, um, was no longer my village. You know, I was, I was very, I felt very much ostracized. And again, as if I had done something wrong, like this was my fault. This was my fault, the way things unfolded. So I packed up my office, of course, under HR supervision, left the village and went out into the woods of Long Beach, California, my own home, (laughs) Um, maybe to make potions. I did a lot of gardening, basically making potions And I essentially went inward for five years. Um, I had two more babies and I was just trying to find my voice again through teaching at a local university. So that original university I worked for straight out of grad school, miraculously, two weeks after I left my executive role, they said they needed a bioethics professor and I went back. And in those five years of being in that place, I felt like I was healing and immersing myself in the birth ethics research, finally, that I had flagged back in 2014 um, as an issue that I I wanted to look into. So I, over the summer of 2017, that's when I worked with a couple of amazing students, and we worked on the No Trauma Mama project, looking at birth ethics issues, interviewing people all over Southern California, meeting them where they are, where they were in their workplaces, at kitchen tables, in parks, break rooms, whatever it was, you know, interviewing people about their birth experiences. And then looking through the findings from, you know, essentially we proved what I knew from that experience of sitting in that 
new moms group. And that was traumatic birth, self-described traumatic birth and obstetrical harm, obstetric violence is very, very real. So where this story takes an interesting twist is that I left my university role last year and now I am back. I am back in a new version of the organization that I originally worked for for those seven years. So they merged with another company and now they are a larger healthcare system, much, much larger, I believe third largest in the US that spans several states now. And I am right now as I record this in the same exact building, just steps away from my old office, which happens to be occupied by the people working on mental maternal health initiatives in my region. So like, what are the odds of that? This is like a 60,000 square foot building, four stories. And I get assigned last year to the office that is steps away from my old one. And this whole hallway is now occupied by people doing maternal health work. So you may be asking, why the heck am I back? Well, this is a bit of an experiment. Because the big question for me is, ultimately, can we change systems if we are a part of the system? A lot of people believe that you you need to fully immerse yourself in and understand a system if you want to work to change it from the inside out. And is that even possible as a question? Other people would say, mm, no way. There's There's no way to change from within the system if you are a part of the system. So... You've got to do work outside of the system and hope to influence or create a new way. So again, this is, I take my job very seriously <laughs> for, for those coworkers that I, that might be listening to this or anyone from my organization. I'm back for a lot of reasons, but I will say that it is also a bit of an experiment. You, you know, I'm hoping to create change armed with a whole lot of new knowledge and quite honestly, not many fucks to give because what I have learned is that no matter what a rock star you are, everyone is replaceable. And if the last several months have taught us anything, there's a whole lot of change that can happen really rapidly. And nothing is forever and nothing is permanent. And the only constant is change, right? The only thing we know for sure is change. So why do I do what I do? And ultimately, you know, what do I stand for? So <sighs> birth ethics and bioethics. Think about this. So what do ultimately like ask, I want to ask that question. This question might be helpful. What do birth ethics and the Amazon rainforest have in common? Random question, but it might help explain why I do what I do and why I'm committed to this work. I was taking a walk one day at a local nature center. I always get the best ideas after walks in nature. But sometimes it's the hardest thing for me to prioritize, even though I know it's so good for me mentally and physically. But I was walking one day through our local nature center and I had this thought because someone had asked me ex to explain, you know, why birth ethics? Like, why is this so important to you? And ultimately, like I'm walking through and I realize this this powerful truth that many of us already are aware of, you know, that we are all in relationship whether we like it or not, we are interconnected. We are members of a diverse ecosystem that's reliant on every piece of that ornate, ornate dance to stay healthy, strong, and thriving. 
So you cut down one acre of trees and the whole rainforest suffers. If you remove one decaying log and a tiny, powerful world in and of itself fails to flourish and nourish the soil necessary to regenerate and sustain new life. When we focus on ethical birth practices, which is ultimately what I do and what I educate around and what I hope to impact and and influence around, you know, we are um, supporting one another like an Amazon-like ecosystem that's not always noticeable to the human eye or to our, um, you know, our intellect, really. It's something that can be deeply felt sometimes and not like consciously known. But when birth workers, I believe, prioritize the dignity of birthing people and promote ethical birthing practices, they support not only the emerging mother, but the entire system they will inhabit when they leave that place of birth with their newborn. So what drives me is the belief that how a person experiences childbirth impacts their identity and confidence as a parent. And respectful, empowering births create healthy mothers, children, and communities. I believe that entirely, like with all my heart. So so the question I want to leave you with, the thought I want to leave you with is, can we change systems that are inherently harmful or that have harmful elements hardwired into the way they function? Or do they end up just changing us in the end? And I will let you know the answer to that question for me because I'm living that reality right now. But I would love for you to hop on over to Instagram and share a comment under the post about this episode as to what what you believe about systems. Can you participate in systems and change them? Or do you need to work outside of the system to ultimately produce the change that you want to see in the world? I hope you all have an amazing day. It's been great to share this solo time. And I'll be talking with you soon.